Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, May 11th, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. And joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, uh, we have Doug, Gabby, and Elliot. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Hey. So we're missing Tiffany and Erica today. Wish them well. Uh, we hope to see them soon. Um, so today we are talking about getting down and dirty. Health benefits of dirt. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Eat, eat some dirt. Gonna go, yep. Going to go deep on dirt. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it seems like this obsession with the, the uh, idea of cleanliness uh, you know, sanitizers, antibacterial soaps, all that kind of thing has kind of arisen fairly recently in human history. Now, to some, obviously to great benefit, but also to great detriment. So we're not dying from a cut anymore necessarily, but we are damaging our, like, you know, biological ecosystems to the point where we can't handle things that are coming up now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's kind of interesting and it's, uh, you know, it's sort of a Faustian kind of thing where everybody's trying to be really clean and then actually hurting themselves in the end. That's crazy. Um, yeah. So, but it's not just that. It's not just like the surface of your hands or even like the interior of your mouth. It's your entire body. And so that's kind of what we wanted to delve into and talk about the the microbiome, you know, and, and what you need um, and what you're unwittingly kind of getting rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, there's a bunch of uh, interesting kind of aspects to this. Um, there is something called the hygiene hypothesis uh, that we, we were reading about and talking about being too clean. You know, being too clean can actually hurt your health. Um, so I'm just looking through here that it says that uh, the triclosan findings in the younger age groups may support the hygiene hypothesis, which maintains that living in very clean and hygienic environments may impact our exposure to microorganisms that are beneficial for development of the immune system. So we're being super basic here. The idea is you need microorganisms, but you know, what does that actually mean? And Gabby and Elliot, you guys were talking before the show about uh, H. pylori. I wonder if you could go into that, just kind of like maybe explain briefly what it is and how a lot of people might think it's bad, but we actually need it. Maybe I should give first the mainstream line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally, totally, yeah. Well, it is considered... Um, bacteria self-infection in a sense that you know a lot of the population has it and some people are not affected by it but others you know uh, it is estimated that h pylori is behind you know stomach cancer but a lot of like diseases that might seem unrelated to the digestive system the one thing is that if a person you know has a stomach ulcer or on the small intestine ulcer like duodenal ulcer and then find H. pylori, they treat it, they eradicate it like with a potent, you know, antibiotic protocol involving three, four antibiotics. And for, you know, even two weeks, it's absolutely brutal. But if you eradicate the bacteria, the person heals from the ulcer. And in the 90s, you know, the typical emergency room uh, problem, you know, it was like a young person with a acute abdomen, you know, bleeding from an ulcer who needed, who needed, you know, emergency surgery. That's like considered a thing of the past since mm. these eradication protocols were introduced, you know, people don't get that anymore. Like, you know, yeah, maybe stomachache, but if they discover the bacteria, they will treat it. And supposedly, yeah, it has prevented that. Mm. And yeah, that's the mainstream. I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, so so there was the, there was a guy actually who hypothesized that this bacteria, um, the H. pylori, Helicobacter pylori in full, uh, was responsible for um, for producing stomach ulcers, and no one believed him at the time. And so what he actually did <laughs> was um, was he cultured H. pylori. And he can he basically ingested it, and he got stomach ulcers. <laughs> and then he took his findings and he eradicated it, and he eradicated the H. pylori, and the stomach ulcer healed. And I believe that he actually got a Nobel Prize for that. Mm. Um, and ever since then, that, yeah, well, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, it, it to some extent, um, the the H. pylori can be detrimental for some people but what many researchers have actually found is that some people can be asymptomatic and still have h pylori infection and so many doctors if they're specifically in in functional medicine as well is that they will test the h pylori and even if someone doesn't have ulcers and they come back positive um then they will eradicate the h pylori they will, as as Gabby said, they'll put them on one of these antibiotic protocols. And so what the current research is actually showing is that in some people, H. pylori is actually protective somewhat. Um, and that the people who do have it and then they get rid of it actually have a higher in instance of or a higher likelihood of developing um, esophageal cancer. Hmm. And so they they're kind of coming to the idea that, okay, maybe this person has a bacterial infection, um, but is it always a bad thing? You know, like how do we define infection? Because our bodies are, um, every surface is, uh, is laden with these bacteria. And so yeah. to just pinpoint one kind of bacteria, okay, you see a correlation that it may be implicated in some other pathology, um, and, and you see that someone's got it, you also automatically assume that it's bad. And this is this is the kind of mainstream view of the human body that um, we're almost meant to be sort of sterile. And that yeah. if there are mm -hmm. certain bacteria, then you need to get rid of them because bacteria are bad. But what we kind of know now is that that couldn't be any further from the truth. Yeah, uh, It turns out that by weight... Um, I believe that the DNA of the various bacteria populating um, our bodies is like a hundred times more than our own weight of our own DNA. So, uh, 150, yeah. So it turns out we're actually more bacteria than we are human being in I'm some so respects. That's an obsessive compulsive person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it comes back to this idea of balance, right? Like the the you know it's it's kind of like um candida and giardia like those are naturally present in all of our digestive tracts they're always there the only mm -hmm. problem comes when there's kind of a shift in the balance and it's like suddenly there's more of this bacteria than there's supposed to be and with candida it kind of grows into a fungus and then it can start causing all kinds of problems but it's like you don't want to you can't just label that as bad and then try to eradicate it because you know, it's important to have this kind of balance there where you have like kind of an, a very diverse microbiome. Um, yeah. Because, you know, these things are probably, <clears throat> excuse me, serving functions that we aren't even aware of when they're in their kind of proper balance and they're, and they're kind of held in check by other good bacteria. Yeah. 
and and so like Jonathan was saying before, there's this thing called the hygiene hypothesis, and so it, what this basically states is that um, children, uh, you know, when they're introduced into the world, um, they would naturally come across or come into contact with various different types of um, bacteria, fungus, viruses, protozoans, etc. Uh, all of these different life forms and their immune system needs to learn how to live cooperative, cooperatively with them. Um, mm. And the, the problem it, it sort of come about is that the past sort of 100 years or so, while we made uh, great steps towards sanitation and things like that, we've kind of gone, um, gone over... Uh, onto the other side of the spectrum and so it's almost as if we've become too clean and yeah. so now it's so common to use antibacterial hand soap uh, sprays um, keep everything clean washing our food can you hear us Chatters, can you guys hear us now hey there we go okay good all right so we're back cool what's the last thing you heard <laughs> <laughs> Super sterile thing. What were you saying? Yeah, yeah. something about they yeah. don't have and real eggs in the hospital. Yeah, it's yeah. forbidden to use real eggs in the hospital because of so risk crazy. of salmonella infection. Oh my god! So they use a substitute liquid made out of like a protein, you know. That sounds. So we basically just drastically um, changed the the quantity and I guess the diversity of different bacteria that we come into contact with. And um, it, I think it's no coincidence that the rates of allergies um, have gone, have absolutely skyrocketed. So we look at all the other factors like, you know, vaccinations and all of these other things. Um, but I think that one of the factors involved here seems to be this over sterilization of the environment. Because if you look at the way that the immune system <clears throat> actually develops in the first place, um, you have... You have sort of various arms of the immune system, and uh, two of the main ones that researchers focus on. Oh, um, someone's still not getting audio still. Yeah, hmm. I'm telling them to Can... reload. Ah, okay. Can everybody else hear us? Uh, let's see. Huh. Ah, there we okay. go. Yes. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Elliot. So, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, research in sort of immunology, which focuses on what is called the Th1 uh, side of the immune system and the Th2 side of the immune system. So, this one arm of the immune system is basically involved in regulating cell-mediated immunity. This is what helps you uh, clear out cancer cells and attack int intracellular pathogens, so pathogens inside of the cell. And then this other arm is the one that is responsible for regulating antibody production um, and is involved in allergies and everything like that. And so if someone has a particular kind of condition, so say they have um, lots of allergies, um, atopic, so sort of eczema and uh, respiratory difficulties and stuff, um, then that would be classed as the TH2 autoimmune or TH2 immune-driven um, sort of uh, issue. And on the other hand, if you had someone with a, an autoimmune condition, say multiple sclerosis, this is considered as a TH1-driven condition. 
But without going into the details, the way that the body learns how to um, regulate the differences between those two kinds of immune responses is via the interaction with bacteria in the gut, because a lot of the immune system actually resides in the gut. Okay, so many of the foods that we're eating, if they're not having, uh, if they don't have soil on them, for instance, if you were to pick a lettuce and then eat it with loads of dirt on it, you would be getting, you would be sampling a, a large variety of the bacteria in your environment. And those bacteria actually help to communicate to the body what is safe and what isn't safe. And based on that information, the body can basically determine what foods it wants to react against and what foods are safe. And likewise, what pathogens it wants to react against and what 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 bacteria are safe. And so this whole process of immune um, development is really quite dependent on the diversity of the bacteria that we come into contact with very early on. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you look at, um, for instance, the way that children are birthed. So for instance, you can find various research, which cites evidence showing that children who are born via cesarean section, are um, much more likely to develop various autoimmune conditions, uh, have allergies, etc., etc., and they think that that is because when the baby comes out of the vaginal tract, it, it gets a large dose of the vaginal fluid into the mouth and onto the face, and this contains lots of bacteria, and There's it's those also, bacteria that build the immune system. There's also a school of thought: is should we do an enema before giving birth or not? Uh -huh. The last time, uh, the last uh, place I visited, it was not. Let's not do uh, an enema, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, as gross as it is, I think I, I've actually read that because birth tends to be pretty messy, and the the fetus or the the baby is going to kind of get exposed to like fecal matter. That that actually is good because they are getting some of that bacteria as well. You know, mm -hmm. as yeah. distasteful as that <laughs> might sound, you know, it's a messy process. It's the OG fecal transplant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting well, can... too because the, uh, the the baby, you know, it, it when it when it comes out of the vagina, it is getting all of that um, good bacteria um, that you know from the mother. So it's it's funny because they've done studies and they've found that the bacterial, um, well, the microbiome of the the, the infant. Um, you know, it resembles the mother at first and then over the course of a few months, and this is not only internal, it's also external, um, it starts to get more out of the environment and its, it's uh, microbiome starts to shift. And everybody's microbiome, like everybody on the face of the planet has a different microbiome. It doesn't matter if, like even amongst like twins or people who are raised in the exact same environment, everybody has a very unique microbiome. So it's really interesting that at first the, the infant has a, one that's probably, I don't know about identical, but very, very similar to the mother's. And then as time goes on, it starts to kind of get this unique uh, microbiome that, you know, mimics the environment, mimics what's on the mother's skin, the father's skin, like anybody who's holding the baby. So I thought that was pretty interesting. It is. I mean, yeah, we're just kind of sharing our environments with each other on a daily basis, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I know I've told this story before on the on the podcast, but it, it's it's relevant here. So I'm sorry, listeners, if you've heard this and you're bored. Uh, but <laughs> I can personally attest to this, and uh, like gravely so. And I would recommend that nobody actually try this. But um, 
at one point I decided I was going to just do a detox. Like, and I didn't look up any protocols. I knew that uh, oregano oil was uh, antifungal and antibacterial. So I just started taking oregano oil internally and was doing CrossFit at the time. So it was feeling like really good, you know, and I'm sure at first it started to detox a little bit and I felt great, but um, I was doing like 10 drops internally a day. Mm. And within like four or five days, I started to feel sick. Uh, I broke out in hives, really bad hives, like over my entire body. I had no energy at all. I was really depressed for like two weeks. This went on. And then finally it dawned on me like, oh, probiotics. So I started taking probiotics and uh, it went away within just like two days. So wow. I'm pretty sure what I did was just completely wipe out my, my gut microbiome and everything went haywire. I mean, I felt like I was in chemo or something. It was awful. Oh, olive oil works. So it's oh, important, you know. No. Uh, oh, oregano oil. Oh, oregano, oregano oil. oil yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really potent stuff. But I mean, that microbiome is really important. Everything in your body goes out of whack if that's gone. Yeah. You know. So it basically makes you like a snowflake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cannot deal with it. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> yeah. Like the environment becomes like too hard to take because you've gotten rid of your protective microbiome. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the depression, I thought, was a really interesting aspect because that was very real and it was psychological and it was, uh, you know, it was really yeah. disturbing. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because they've even been talking about how um, gardening and like getting in the dirt and stuff like that actually the, the can help with depression. And, you know, mm -hmm. you think it's just kind of a psychological thing. Oh, yeah, you're getting outside, you're in the sunshine, like, and those things probably are, are part of it. But apparently it also is because there are bacterial species in the soil that will actually help with depression. And they have started to, to talk about this gut-brain axis, axis <clears throat> sorry, where it's like there, there, there are bacterial species that can help with psychological issues, which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. But apparently this is, this is something that they're starting to kind of uncover. And uh, it's, yeah, it is mind-blowing. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually at a seminar last, last night and um it was it was on this very topic, the gut brain axis. Um and yeah, it, it's interesting because we've always uh or people have generally tended toward the idea that uh different psychological states are or are basically determined by the way that you're thinking or the you know it's 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 in the realm of psychology whereas like when you look at the the sort of biology of it there's a very good set of evidence which should suggest that actually what is going on in the, in the gut and even on the skin and in the nasal cavity everywhere really um can can really affect um how the brain works uh, it's like there's a there's an intimate communication between the bacteria um, and and the and the body and ourselves mm -hmm. and and there was um, I remember listening to an interview by a doctor called Dr. Ted Ashikoso and he was talking about some research being done about how um, the the bacteria in the gut actually have the um, ability to communicate with the mitochondria of different cells and to hmm. be able to essentially tell them how fast to produce energy. Wow. So people have all, all, always thought, okay, mitochondria, if you're going to look at mitochondria, look at all the nutrients and things like that. 
But what they were actually showing was that, no, there's a communication between the bacteria. So the bacteria says, okay, we've got a situation going on in the gut. Maybe there's lots of nutrition or maybe there's not much nutrition. Maybe there's pathogenic overload. Maybe it's a relatively clean environment. And so it tells the mitochondria, okay, you need to either produce more reactive oxygen species or you have to produce more ATP or you don't have to produce much. You have you can shut down essentially. And so it's like, yeah, it's like they can actually tell us what to do based on what is going on, I guess, in the environment. You know, it is thought that mitochondria was once a bacteria, you know, and in a symbiotic relationship with the cells, it became incorporated as part of an organ of the cell. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, so it's we really got its own just... DNA. Yeah, It's like a cell within the cell. Yeah. So we really are just piloting a ship in a weird way. Yeah. I don't you even know, know that we're piloting it. Yeah. <laughs> Who's in charge here? We're kind of like yeah. a passive passenger, really. Yeah. I have noticed when I take probiotics, uh, which has like lactobacillus rhamnosus, Helveticus, and Saccharomyces boulardii, I feel better. My mood is better. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I take a, uh, I take a blend called Great Dophilus, which is just from Now Foods, but it has a, a blend of eight different strains in it, and... Uh, yeah, same thing. I, I never feel better than when I'm taking probiotics or eating some kind of fermented food or something like that. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because there, there, there are some researchers who are actually coming out with a term called the hollow biome. So not referring to a human being as like the human being being separate from the microbiome that is sort of hosted in the human being, but rather that the human being is this um you know conglomeration of all of these different species and, and i guess our native human cells are just one of those but we're actually outnumbered in many ways and so it's like if you if we take it back to the topic of the show um and and look at our modern day lifestyles it's like oh how could we get it so wrong what what is the consequences of killing all of the bacteria in our environments what is this actually doing to us? It's all a learning process. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's kind of like when Pasteur came around, came along, who was like, well, I mean, there's so much to talk about <laughs> about Pasteur. <laughs> and you could, uh, there's, there's lots of people who are saying he was a total fraud and all this kind of stuff. But basically, you know, discovering um, that we're surrounded by germs and stuff, it was kind of like the initial reaction. Everybody was like, ew. Let's kill these things. This is terrible. We don't want this around. Like, this is what's getting us sick. Which, you know, there's some truth to that. Um, there is, like, you know, when what we're talking about here, I mean, there certainly are instances where there could be, like, foodborne illness or, you know, there's certain places where you don't want to drink the water because there certainly are um, pathogenic species out there that you have to be careful of. But it's kind of like people go overboard with it and they just want to napalm the entire thing and, and have everything be completely sterile which clearly we're starting to discover is a really bad idea. I don't know if it's a myth or not, but it was Pasteur who said at the end of his life, apparently yeah. it was the terrain that yeah. is important. Yeah. Not the, not the yeah, <laughs> not the germ. Yeah. <laughs> the germ. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know if it's a myth either, but that would be, it, it almost vindicates him, but I don't know. <laughs> What's really well, interesting about what you just said, Doug, uh, is that um, you said it about the drinking water. 
Mm-hmm. And so when when I went to India um, and I drank some of the water, I got really sick. Uh. <laughs> and I think that's that's common, um, uh, you know, to get food poisoning and all that sort of stuff. But then if you look at the natives, you look mm-hmm. at the local population, and they can drink it quite quite. Um, they they can drink it fine and they don't get they don't get sick. Yeah, sure. So yeah. I was listening to a, an interview with Dr. Dietrich Klinghart. Uh, it was with Mercola, actually. It's a really good one, and uh, and he, he was talking about uh, it's kind of like a controversial subject, but he was actually saying that he doesn't believe there is any such thing as a pathogen per se. Huh. Um, and I know it's quite like a sweeping statement, but he was he was talking about how how the 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 microbiome essentially can deal with various other bacteria which we would call pathogenic. And so he was he was citing um, some of the work done by uh, what's his name? Not Louis Pasteur. We were just talking about him. Um, uh, he is the French researcher who discovered he didn't discover vitamin C. It's ah, uh, his name will come to me after a while. But basically, he's found that the the electromag. Sorry, say that again. Linus Pauling. Uh, no, not Linus Pauling. It, it yeah, it will come to me. But basically, this researcher has been studying the effects of the microbiome or like the various interactions between the different bacteria. And he was showing that actually what what it is is that they have their own electromagnetic signature. Hmm. And so for a bacteria to be incorporated into the microbiome, it has to adopt or it has to change its resonance to be able to uh, fit in to, I guess you could call the, the electromagnetic signature of your microbiome. Hmm. Yeah, so he's saying that all of these different species have their own electromagnetic frequencies that they that they emit and stuff, and the the potential pathogenicity of a bacteria is its inability to be incorporated into your microbiome. Huh. Uh, now he was putting well. this specifically in the context of EMF. So he was saying that when he sees clients. I know this is kind of off topic, but it's kind of on topic at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. want to detract too much from it. No, it's but he's saying that, yeah, when he sees clients, one of the first things that he tells them to do is um, is reduce all, most of the EMF exposure that they come across. And if they refuse to do so, he will not see them. Hmm, and well. even if it's about a gut issue, um, he, he was basically saying how the EMF, how he, he believes that the EMF is one of the biggest problems with many um, gut, gut issues and non-gut issues which involve gut dysbiosis because of this, this, uh, this, this, uh, this quality or this aspect, the, the way that they communicate and the way that essentially a pathogen can, can um, induce like an immune response um, is is because of this this electromagnetic sort of um, quality or whatever. It's um, fascinating. It, it speaks to me of the uh, the Royal Rife uh, technology where they treat conditions with different light frequencies. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I'm curious if that plays into that. It makes sense though, because I mean, for the one thing, I mean, we know that EMF is extremely harmful, and it it, it affects people in in weird ways that we don't totally understand, and 
the fact that it would be kind of interfering with the communication of the microbiome is is pretty interesting. And it's mm-hmm. it's interesting also what you're saying, Elliot, about how you know the locals can drink the water no problem. Uh, there was an incident in Canada, and this was probably like I don't know twenty years ago or something, and I forget the name of the town off the top of my head, but they were a, a town that was all kind of on well water. And there was some kind of pathogen that got in, into the well water and it ended up actually killing people. Um, but the weird thing about it was is that not everybody got sick, despite the fact that everybody was drinking the water. Not everybody was affected by it. Like some people were just completely laid out. Some people died. And then other people were completely unaffected. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it's, it's really weird because, you know, the, the common thought would be if a pathogen got in there and everybody got exposed to it, then everybody would have kind of the same reaction to it. But... You know, maybe it's just that some people were more able to incorporate that foreign pathogen and into whatever the electromagnetic signature, like they were able to kind of vibe with the microbiome, and it didn't really have much of an effect. Go ahead, Ellie. No, I was just gonna, sorry. I could, when I said that, I forgot. I forgot where I was going to go with that. But yeah, no, it was back to the idea that maybe. Um, well, I guess that the. the um, the adaptation to your environment allows you to be able to build up like a symbiotic relationship with those so-called pathogens. And so like when someone would go uh, to a different environment, say I travel to India, um, my body or my microbiome is not in any way adapted to the various species that, that are present in that environment. And so, um, so that, that I think that can be problematic. Um, but, but the fact that some people can tolerate it and not get sick kind of, kind of suggests that those things aren't necessarily pathogenic, um, in the, in the black and white sense. Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. Like, you know, that well, in mainstream circles, you know, yeah. Like, travelers diarrhea, where you go to a new place as mm. a tourist and you get diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Is like it's considered very mechanically in a sense that, um, yeah, you're just not used to that water, to the mm. poop water, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Poo in the water, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the locals are. <laughs> so it's basically, <laughs> yeah, like you travel with some probiotics and that takes care of it. But this speaks of more, there's more than meets the eye, you know. Yeah. There's an electrochemical signal. I think it's pretty I wonder if, like, in the future, when people have kind of all figured this kind of thing out, it's like you will sort of, before you travel, you'll inoculate yourself by having some of the water shipped from wherever you're traveling to, and you kind of slowly start to introduce it into your microbiome so it kind of gets used to it. <laughs> and then when you travel, like, you're, you've already incorporated it and you did it, you know, in titrated doses, so you're fine. That's not a bad idea. I'd be hesitant to, to try it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very yeah, that's really it's really fascinating. Um, when we were talking about like the Elliot, you had mentioned earlier the consequences of ignoring your microbiome or even destroying it. Um, to me, in reading some of this stuff, like one of the larger consequences is the superbugs that we mm-hmm. see. You know, and I think that that's direct a direct result of of how this has gone on because it's it's not your you know not necessarily your average antibacterial soap or being over clean in your life but in the medical field using stronger and stronger antibiotics um and using them a little bit more flippantly you know in cases where they may not be needed has resulted in mutated strains um and you can see i mean um 
I don't remember the name of this, but if you look up on YouTube, you know, uh, back, uh, uh, antibiotic resistant strain grows quickly or something like that. Look that up on, on YouTube and it's a video of a giant Petri dish where they have bands. So they have bacteria on the end, right? Or a culture. And then they have bands on the dish of uh, various strengths of antibiotics with the strongest being at the middle and the weakest on the outside. And then they do a time lapse and they show this bacteria growing and it hits the wall of the antibiotic and then a little bit pops through and then grow and fills up the entire next section. And then it hits the next wall and maybe two or three parts pop through the antibiotic and then it keeps growing and it shows how that works. And it covers the entire dish of this really strong antibiotic solution. Wow. (laughs) So, yeah. So it's like watching antibiotic resistant bacteria, like in, well, not in real time, but yeah, but pretty close. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, it's really crazy. Yeah, it so. is crazy. You know, it's like it's it's it it really comes into the whole hygiene hypothesis thing and the idea that we are kind of obsessed with this kind of clean clean environment that we just keep on getting stronger and stronger antibacterial um kind of, you know, surface cleaners and all this kind of stuff and you know in hospitals they're kind of like we need to use the strongest like everything has to be completely sterile. And it even comes into like antibiotic usage as well. Like just the idea that, oh, you've got a bad bacteria. We need to wipe everything out. We need to just like napalm the whole thing. Like it's got to go down. And it's kind of like we're, we're really starting to see the, the, the consequences of this with these superbugs. It reminds me Yo, of it looks guy like... of the website, Storm's, uh, Storm Cloud Gather- Gathering. Yeah. yeah. Like he had yeah. MARSA, Methyl Resistance, Staphylococcus aureus, and he mm. got so many antibiotic protocols. Yeah. And he will always come back and have a serious infection. Yeah. And then yeah. he did yeah. something like he bathed himself in, in kombucha. In kombucha. That's yeah. a care of it. That's yeah. It. yeah. Kombucha, which yeah. is a fermented drink, so it has beneficial yeast and uh, bacteria in it and he actually yeah. was able to to get it under control by using it topically it's amazing that, that makes lots that. of sense oh sorry Jonathan. Had, oh no sorry I, I had uh folliculitis one time on my chest yeah. which is just basically like an infection of the hair follicles mm. um and i cured it with raw honey just putting honey on there oh yeah it went went away really quick the the um the use of probiotics for um to like to achieve antibiotic activity um is is like really um well documented actually mm-hmm. and and i um i've done a lot of research over the past couple of years on a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because i suffered from a, a lot of gut issues and it's only sort of recently the past couple of months that i've um really started to deal with them and um a lot of the the ideas i guess they're similar to what you would find in mainstream medicine is that people think that if you've got like a bacterial overgrowth or like a bacterial infection that you would use antibiotics Hmm. um to to basically wipe it all it it all out um but the problem is there is that one is that you're you're making the assumption that um certain bacteria will respond to this very targeted antibiotic because not all antibiotics are wide spectrum, you know, mm-hmm. and there's lots of antibiotics that only have certain effects on certain different types of bacteria. And so you're making that assumption uh, and it may not be correct because we find, I mean, I 
know of a lot of people who go to the GP, they've got urinary tract infection, they get given a specific kind of antibiotic. But then when it's cultured, it finds out that that antibiotic doesn't even work for that infection. Uh, so they've been put on loads of rounds of antibiotics. And it's not even suitable for that particular infection that they've got. Um, but, but to take it a couple steps further is that what, what you're doing is, say you do wipe it all out, um, you're potentially paving the way for something else to come in. Um, um, when we understand the, the, the beneficial sort of protective effects of, of the natural um, bacteria that populate various parts of the body, um, if you look at various strains of bacteria, they produce their own antibiotics. They produce chemicals called bactericidins. So there's certain strains of anti uh, of probiotics that you can take, which essentially uh, they're like intelligent antibiotics. So what we do is we'll you know synthesize an antibiotic which is sort of targeted to work in one way, but with these probiotics, what they can actually do is they can go into a specific area, say in the gut. And they'll go into the area and they'll sample what is going on intelligently because they are living beings. So they will intelligently assess the situation and then come up with um, uh, uh, an antibiotic or a bactericidin, which is called. Um, and that will be almost targeted at the overgrowth. Yeah, That's specifically. So, yeah, so it's like happening in real time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really they're well. informed exactly, and and the and the thing is, is that if you look at the research, say on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it actually turns out that the use of probiotics like Saccharomyces boulardii and spore-based probiotics are actually just as effective, but more effective long term. So people find short-term benefit from taking antibiotics, but then a couple months down the line, they get the same issue. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the problem, is that when you wipe out everything, um, you're not necessarily fixing the root of the problem. But with this, the, the, the probiotics, they can intelligently sort of deal with the situation themselves uh, because it benefits them for you to be healthy. That's what you have to understand is that you're not working, you're not working against the bacteria. I mean, if you died, then they would die as well. You know, yeah. they need you to live. So you, like Stephanie Seneff was speaking about, you know, they, they're helping you out, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And nowadays, um, well, urinary tract infections are usually due to E. coli, Escherichia coli. Mm. And nowadays this was unheard of in the past. Nowadays, it's very common to have multi-resistant E. coli. You know, mm. creepy. Yeah. It, it, Gabby, I had a question for you from kind of like a devil's advocate perspective. Uh, since you work in medicine, uh, like, wh what's the the line? Because there there is validity, right, to bacterial infection and the need to guard against that. Um, and so I'm coming at, like, say, from, like, a layperson's perspective where, like, okay, I get it, bacteria are not all dangerous, but some are, right? So what is the line? Like, is serving, you know, real eggs in a hospital, like, promoting a, a danger of, you know, salmonella or, like, really how real or uh, how blown up are these things? I think, at least from a public healthcare system perspective, it's just when a person has symptoms, specific clinical, you know, scenario uh, it rules the, the treatment choice. Mm. And the uh, thing about the eggs in the hospital that are forbidding is just, yeah, 
hygiene hypothesis, basically. Right, it's too much. It happened, like, in a hospital, there was a very bad salmonella infection, and something went overboard and forbid it, you know, all eggs, you know, hospitals, you know? it could be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I get that, like, doctors would be overly cautious. That's kind of the point, right? I mean, the the whole point is to save your patient if you look at it at the core. So you you would want to be overly cautious, but I think it's gone too far to the point where now you're you're statistically at a higher risk risk of like a lethal infection in a hospital than you are in yeah. the middle of the woods yeah i tell uh, you know. uh, i hope i often you know i'm in a very tricky situation often when uh, a very old person like 80 something you know spain they have relatively good lifestyle and quality of life but when they have pneumonia i'm divided like I'm not going to send you to the hospital because it's going to be worse. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think you can manage at home and I'll visit you often to make sure the oxygen is uh, acceptable levels and so forth. And it is tricky, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I always try to avoid them sending to the hospital. I think it's a dangerous place. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it is yeah. that way. It's like you're lucky if you make it out of the hospital without some kind of like brutal... Uh, antibiotic-resistant infection of some kind. Yeah, Gabby, Gabby, um, in your in your experience, how many like what percentage of of the patients that are in a hospital for so, sort of like a prolonged period of time, say a week or longer, how many of those are put on antibiotics? Yeah, it depends on the on the service. I mean, on the specialty. I think a lot of them, at least, uh, if they if they were on the intensive care unit, yeah, I, I would be surprised if they didn't caught an infection. Mm. Actually, you know, mm. and I know that some people are more conservative, like pediatricians. They hear more about this microbiome research, so they're wary of giving antibiotics to children because they're afraid that the child is going to end up with Crohn's disease or something like yeah. that. You know, but. Dentists, they are famous, you know. Mm. You don't even have signs of infection, and they just, like, prescribe the strongest antibiotic ever, you know. The mouth <sighs> is, like, the dirtiest <laughs> hole yeah. in the body. And they sterilize the mouth, you know. Like. But I think it's very, very frequent. If a person was in the hospital, like, for three months, yeah, that's the kind of person who will have multi-resistant uh, E. coli and stuff like that. Hmm. Or MRSA. Yeah. Yeah, I get worried about that sometimes. And like, like I, I, my OCD manifests with chemicals more so than like with biological things. Mm. <laughs> but I, I do get uh, kind of paranoid in like locker rooms. You know, you think mm-hmm. about getting MRSA from the floor or something like that. I don't know how statistically likely that is in, say, a locker room. Um, but I'm sure there's a possibility there. Well, just treat it with topical kombucha. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> or you can make sandals out of kombucha. <laughs> walking on scobies yeah <laughs> well let's uh we we have an audio clip uh about uh, you know being too clean uh being harmful for you so let, let's go to that and then we'll uh, talk a little more when we get back today we're talking about personal hygiene when we started doing it and if we were doing it wrong all of these years or maybe now and also how religion and laws have come into sanitation and hygiene over the millennia and what would happen if you just stopped being hygienic if you just never showered again what would happen anything would it be bad it'd probably be bad but let's kick into it first we're going to talk all about being clean right 
And being clean and being hygienic has some very specific cultural and social contexts and social experiences. But really, overall, hygiene is about making yourself clean, making your food clean, and trying to be healthy and disease-free. We're not so much getting into like whether or not people smell nice, although that can be part of hygiene as well. And it could be that we're just doing hygiene wrong. It comes down to bacteria, right? Hygiene has to do with managing our bacterial and viral load, making sure that we don't have bad bacteria infecting our bodies and making us ill. The thing is, most bacteria that lives on us and in us isn't bad bacteria. Most of it is good bacteria. Bacteria live in our mouths, in our intestines, on our skin, on our genitals, all over the place. And some of these bacteria crowd out other bad bacteria so they don't infect you. They will fight off bad bacteria that could cause illnesses. They're symbiotic with us. One bacteria called bacterioids fragilis can actually help keep our immune system in balance. It's just a piece of bacteria helping us out. Bacteria even helps break down components of food you eat, produce B vitamins that's naturally helping you. And these good bacteria, I'm putting them in finger quotes, can keep us healthy. Hygiene really just has to do with targeting bad bacteria. And this is where the hygiene hypothesis comes in. It was invented by an epidemiologist. They look at patterns and causes of diseases and injuries, and uh, specifically Dr. Strachan, a hygiene hypothesis creator from 1989. The hygiene hypothesis proposes that there was an uptick in things like asthma and hay fever and allergies, mainly because we were too clean. We weren't exposing our children to unhygienic environments. Early exposure to germs and bacteria trains our immune system in the long run. And I love this theory. I used to run around barefoot all the time and I was always outside as a kid and now I have a really great immune system. Whereas a lot of people that I've known over the years, and obviously this is super anecdotal, who didn't run around outside too much, they get sick more often than I do. And uh, there could be any number of reasons. I don't know why I ascribe it to this, but look, in my estimation, kids, get dirty. Eat all the dirt. It's going to be fine. Dr. Strachan found fewer instances of hay fever, even in families with more kids. Younger kids were exposed uh, to the germs of older siblings as they grew, and those things helped boost their immune system over time. A similar study was done in the 1990s looking at children who grew up in more polluted areas of Germany, and they found that those children had lower allergic reactions and fewer cases of asthma, than kids who grew up in a less polluted environment. Essentially, more pollution somehow helped these kids not have allergic reactions and asthma. You know, it's a correlation, not a causation, but it's still pretty cool and important. And animals, having them around can help you as well. Studies have shown living with pets or around farm animals can help decrease the chances of allergies. There's, of course, a line here you don't want to like literally live with animals. You just want to have them around. It comes down to your body learning to fight off bad bacteria and viruses and things that will make you ill. And if you're too clean, your body is not going to be exposed to the bad things and it won't learn to fight them when they come. And you will overreact to harmless substances, potentially like pollen and cause allergic reactions. Now, I think I've said this already, but I want to put this as a reminder that this hygiene hypothesis is a hypothesis. It's a theory. 
that was invented in the late 1980s. So it hasn't been tested for a long period of time. It has been tested, but not over a long period of time. It's not a fact, it's just a theory. The hygiene hypothesis is now referenced in a number of different ways, however. It's a very heavily supported theory. And now we use it for how adults can keep clean more properly. And it's not just for, for kids and for raising. Things we do every day to keep clean might actually be hurting us under the hygiene hypothesis. And it goes back to how we treat our bacterial buddies, our little good bacterial friends. So the big one in this area, especially for adults, let me pull out my soapbox, literally. Antibacterial soap is the worst. It's the worst stuff ever. Studies say that using antibacterial soap creates bacteria that is resistant to antibacterial soap because over time you kill 99.9% .9 of all germs but the ones that survive they breed and then they make all these new germs then you kill 99.9% .9 of the germs and the ones that survive that have survived potentially two rounds of this antibacterial stuff now multiply that over decades decades and countless thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of generations of bacteria, we are forcing them to evolve to fight this threat. And they do, and they create superbugs, or anti-antibacterial soap bacteria, if you will. Some scientists think that by using these, this is doing more harm than good. And it comes down to one ingredient called triclosan, which is found not only in soap, but in those, those special wipes and hand gels and the you know, the instant clean gels and cutting boards and all sorts of things that we use to just kill bacteria easily. A report by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration found no evidence that antibacterial soap is more effective than regular soap. So why are we using it? Because it makes people feel better. Triclosan in the antibacterial soap is, however, making some bacteria resistant to triclosan, but also to antibiotics. Bacteria are essentially mutating and getting stronger, specifically things like Salmonella and E. coli, which are very dangerous. And this isn't 100% proven, but many studies are finding the links between resistant bacteria and antibacterial soap. The World Health Organization has put a group together to study this further. As of today, they can't directly connect to the two, but this whole thing is very serious, and we really don't want superbugs or bacteria that we can't kill with modern technology. So we may be washing our hands wrong and cleaning our surfaces wrong, but what about the rest of our bodies, right? The, the whole body is involved in hygiene. Some experts say that once you're in the shower, you actually shouldn't wash your whole body. The armpits, the feet, you know, private parts, those are all important. Those are the things you really need clean. So maybe we should all just get bidets, you know, bidets. It's a little sink thing in the, next to the toilet. Nobody? Okay, just me then. All this goes back to the idea that good bacteria is important to protect and that bad bacteria is important to fight. But we have to target the bad bacteria. When you do something like antibacterial soap, you're essentially napalming bacteria all over the place instead of selectively targeting the ones that are bad. Showering is sort of similar. We're washing away good bacteria as well as bad. And yes, that is keeping you healthy, but good bacteria actually trains your skin cells to resist bad bacteria, so it's important to keep it around. And they create their own antibiotics to kill bad bacteria. We need those, and we should stop scrubbing them away. But it's more than just protecting that. Showering too much is also bad for your skin physically. Your outermost layer of skin is made up of hardened dead skin cells. It's called the stratum corneum. But just because they're dead doesn't mean that the skin cells aren't helpful. These skin cells protect healthy cells underneath themselves 
from bad bacteria. The dead skin cells are held together with something called sebum. It's a lipid, a fatty, oily compound, and it keeps moisture in. It's excreted by your body naturally. It's on like every hair follicle, all your pores. Basically, it waterproofs our skin and holds this stuff together. But hot water that you probably have in a shower dissolves lipids, ruins the stratum corneum, and can help bacteria have access to your skin. Sometimes scrubbing your skin can destroy that protective layer enough and allow a path for bad bacteria to attack you. The good news is your body's awesome, can repair itself really easily, but the more showers you take, the less time it has to repair itself, which is why frequent showers are bad for you and can lead to dry, cracked, irritated skin because your skin can't repair itself. The American Academy of Dermatology says that you should take a short shower, use warm water instead of hot water, not lather with soap, and air dry or blot your skin. Don't scrape the towel across it. The thing is, it's all about finding a balance and what works for you because we need to be clean. It's important, it's hygienic and healthy. You know, there's a reason hygiene is connected to health because we need to wash ourselves and fight off that bad bacteria. It's one of the things that's helped increase lifespans and keep us healthy over a long period of time. There are germs and bad bacteria and viruses that thrive in places that can make us sick. You know, not washing your cutting board after you cut up some chicken could make you sick. Clean drinking water is super important. But there's a balance between being clean and being unclean. And over time, we started to figure that out. And it's not like that is something you can discover overnight, not just for yourself, but as a society. It's something we've been working on for a long, long, long time. And that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. When did humans start caring about hygiene? We didn't talk about a lot of things that might not be good for us in terms of our hygiene. Let us know down in the comments if you can think of any any factoids you might have. For example, putting those cotton swabs in your ears. You're not actually supposed to do that. You can use them to clean your ears, but you're not supposed to put them in the ear canal. It's bad for your hygiene. Let us know in the comments if you have any other ones that you think that we... Okay, so we don't need the comment stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have heard that about Q-tips. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. I just, I feel when I get out of the shower and I've got water in my ears, I yeah. find like I want to mop it up with something. So I, I do use them. Maybe I'm like, you know, destroying my ears or something. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was interesting uh, though. Yeah. Particularly what we were saying about um, hot showers. I, I, I never knew that. That's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I always thought, I always had like a... You know, the whole exfoliating thing never really rang true to me. It's like, you know, rub your skin so it hurts a little bit and, like, scrub like hell to get off all the dead mm -hmm. skin cells. It's like, well, why do you want to do that? <laughs> it doesn't I just want like to... Sorry, Doug. I just wanted to add something. Um, it was on a comment that he said. Uh, he was talking about how gut bacteria can basically help us uh, digest food. So they produce vitamins and stuff. Well, um, again, I was listening to this interview by Dietrich Klinkhart, and he was actually talking about um, he was talking about the uh, doctor, Doctor Brenner, uh, the guy who famously sort of came up with muesli, oh. and uh, mm. and so he sort of he travelled the world uh, to look for healthy populations and. And stuff like that. And he found uh, a population in the Caribbean. I'm not sure exactly which island it was on. But he found that this whole 
subpopulation of people uh, basically lived on a diet of 100% sweet potatoes. So they ate only sweet potatoes and then a couple of the insects that were living on the sweet potatoes. And they lived, you know, for a very long period of time. They were in great health and they completely go against everything that we sort of think that we know about nutrition. Yeah. So yeah. they had no protein, <laughs> no, um, no fat. Well, yeah, they had a little bit of protein. Did they put the butter on their sweet potatoes? No, it turns out, it turns out that they actually had a specific species of Clostridia, which lived in their gut. And it was a very rare species. And basically, it fermented all of the sweet potato and produced the whole spectrum of essential fatty acids and amino acids. Really? Oh, they're hearing us now. Okay. Okay, cool. So, Elliot, that's a fascinating yep. story. Yeah. <laughs> right, so um, basically, there was this doctor. Um, and he traveled around the world. His name was Dr. Brenner, and he was searching for healthy populations. He came across a subpopulation living in one of the islands of uh, the Caribbean, and he found that when he looked at their diet, they basically consumed 100% sweet potatoes all of the time. Yeah, and so he saw that these people were really healthy, Um, They consumed no protein or they consumed a couple of insects which lived on the sweet potatoes, but basically no protein and no fat. Yeah. And so he was absolutely fabricated as to how could this be the case? Because it goes against everything that we think that we know about nutrition. It turns out that these these people, um, they had a very specific kind of clostridia living in their gut. And this species of clostridia um, could actually ferment the sweet potato carbohydrate and um and produce a full back. Oh, there we okay. go we are there back we okay Good we stuff. are having some uh technical difficulties here so we've gotten bumped a few times and we're just gonna wrap up the show yeah so uh let's see any concluding thoughts you guys don't wash your hands Get too dirty. much yeah, yeah don't wash your hands at all no i'm just kidding yeah <laughs> you, know, you know play in the dirt don't be afraid of it. Yeah, yeah maybe experiment White. with some spore-based probiotics. They contain mm-hmm. bacillus. Bacillus can produce vitamin C. Oh. So nice. you don't necessarily need to have so much vitamin C in your diet. Uh, they do lots of other cool stuff, but we don't have time because the connection is not very good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, cool. Uh, before we get bummed one more time, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. And uh, be sure to check out the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Go to radio.sot.net. Uh, we'll be back next week. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.